Hello, DanceWell listeners. This is Ellie Kushner. And for this episode, I sat down with Janine Bryant to talk about the inevitable experience of aging. Janine Capello Bryant recently completed a two-year post as senior lecturer in dance Faculty of Performing Arts, the University of Wolverhampton in the UK. Janine hails from Pennsylvania and is the former acting chair of dance and director of dance programs at Eastern University, St. David's, Pennsylvania. Janine is a registered provider and quality reviewer for the Safe in Dance International Certificate Programs and currently offers independent bespoke workshops on Safe in Dance International's 10 core principles of healthy dance practice in the UK and US. She is currently on faculty at the Kimberton Waldorf School and is proud to join outstanding colleagues there who are artists and educators. Janine's research focuses on aging and range of motion and on dancers as athletes and early training protocols aimed at producing excellence while promoting dance career longevity. Janine received her BFA in modern dance performance from the University of the Arts Philadelphia in 1986, after which she joined the scholarship trainee program at the Martha Graham School in New York. She then danced with Martha Graham Chu and the Pearl Lang Dance Company. In the fall of 1990, Janine was one of two Americans accepted to study at the Royal Academy of Dancing in London, where she earned her elementary executant certificate and her pre-elementary teaching certification. Janine founded the Professional School in Turnersville, New Jersey in 1991 and directed the school through 2002. Janine has been a guest speaker at Elmhurst Dance School in Birmingham, UK and the Royal Ballet School in London. She has earned the coveted SFHEA, a British qualification of Senior Fellow of the Higher Education Academy which validates her work across global arts sectors as a leader in higher education. Janine is an active member of the International Association for Dance Medicine and Science, a member of their peer review board, poster judging committee, and education committee. Janine is an active and contributing member of Dance USA's Task Force on Dancers' Health. In addition, her work for Performing Arts Medical Association includes peer reviews of their publication, Medical Problems of Performing Artists. Janine is an international speaker and has presented her research in the USA, UK, Brazil, Switzerland, Finland, and Canada. Buckle your seatbelt. On this episode, nutrition, life coach, dance, and performance, psychological development. And today, you are in for traction. Hi. Hello. This is Ellie Kushner. And this is Marissa Schaefer from Dancewell Podcast. Dancewell Podcast. All right. So thank you so much, Janine, for um, taking the time to talk to us today about aging as dancers. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited to be here. Great. Um, I love this topic. um, And I'm going to start with a a story (laughs) where a couple of years ago, I hosted a a party, an event, and um, three of my friends and mentors who are over 60 couldn't attend because they were all performing. And I'm not I'm not just talking about like little local neighborhood gigs. These were like women who were one was on stage with Sleep No More, which is one of the most popular immersive dance theater phenomenons in New York City. Um, 
Another was on tour with Yvonne Rayner, who, of course, is one of the founding artists of postmodernism and is herself. Is she over 80 or is she over 90? Possibly older, yeah. Yeah. Possibly older. <laughs> yeah. And she's yeah. still performing and touring her work mm-hmm. around the world. And, um, and, you know, I've been in shows where when I was in my 30s, I was the youngest person in the cast. And, of course, Wendy Whelan, um, diva, retired recently from New York City Ballet at, at 50. And then after that, just continued to dance more in her own projects. And, you know, we could list so many more names, right? Um, Jawale Willa Joselar, who um, is involved in Urban Bush Women and Roxanne Doreen's right, right. Um, Juiced from Lamone and Douglas Dunn and Vicky Schick. And I mean, we could just go on and on. <laughs> like there's all these dancers who are dancing over 50. But I feel like in our field, which Janine and I um, both share as dance medicine and science, I feel like to hear the research and to hear how people talk, you would think all dancers were between like 12 and 35 years old. Do you think I'm, (laughs) do do you agree? Am I being fair? Is that a fair critique or am I being too harsh? No, I I think these are great questions. And, you know, again, thanks for having me on today. Um, I can just share with you, like from the beginning, in order to respond to this fairly, um, in the early days of my research, while formulating the plan for my studies on aging and range of motion, I asked my supervisory committee something similar, like, why was there so little information available on older dancers? You know, where's the literature on this? And, you know, their response is, we can only guess that reporting on how high a leg can go, rather than the rate at which a dancer loses extension is far more sexy and inspiring. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's what my supervisors literally said to me. And I thought, wow, okay, well, you know, um, <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what to say to that. But, you know, as well, it may be because the available participants in studies are primarily, um, you know, younger, active in age, and thus provide a larger sample size. I mean, those are the other things that we can guess. Um, but that said, you know, yeah, you know, people who are participating in these studies are, are dancers who are, you know, currently in companies, right? Right. Institutionalized organizations. Exactly. And stuff, exactly. Right? Right. And, you know, trust me, in my research, I've had to seek out the dancer over 35, often traveling far and wide to get groups of them to join my studies, you know. Um, so, you know, active, um, the demographic shift of active older dancers, you know, is noticeable, and I think on trends with statistics that support you know, worldwide, the human population is living longer than ever before, and that includes dancers, right? So here we are. Right. Um, so to date, though, I haven't found much significant work on dancers over 40, which is why my PhD is, is aiming to remedy that literature gap. Um, and I hope to encourage other researchers to take up the cause because I'm just scratching the surface, you know. Uh, there's so much to learn. There's so much to look at. And it's often overwhelming at times, you know, and as you're working, you, you know, you answer one question and, and you, you, you're presented with 10 more. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's often the case. Um, but we're out there. Performers over, over 30, 35 are still on stages and studios working. So we need the support of the dance medicine and science community and some research focused on, on us and how we can continue safely. I mean, dare I extrapolate out, but like even aging women in general are under-researched exactly. in all of science. So, right. I mean. Uh, yeah, yeah. We fall under an umbrella of a larger gap. Um, So is that what brought you to your PhD was this gap or, um, you know, usually research emerges from like a personal experience, a gap in the literature, a particularly potent experience, and it all converges. Was that the case for you? 
Yeah, it really was. So uh, the focus of my studies was inspired by a diagnosis I received almost 10 years ago at the age of 44. Um, I was still performing. I was teaching a full schedule in academia and choreographing. Um, was experiencing severe back pain, like none other, you know, nothing I'd ever had before. Um, I'd never had any back pain before, and was diagnosed with spondylolisthesis, which is a fracture at the L5 vertebrae, right at the spinous process. So, you know, and you probably are familiar with this type of condition. It's common among athletes, dancers, gymnasts. You know, big ranges of motion, lots of um, flexion, extension of the spine, and mine in particular includes a disc slippage, which is the listhesis part. Um, and I'm currently at a stage one, two stabilized, so it's fine and I'm out of pain, but it really was a game changer for me. And, um, so after the diagnosis, I was afforded the opportunity to embark on the PhD. Um, and so my condition was definitely the driving force behind my inquiry, you know, to try to understand what happened to me, how to avoid inflicting the same damage on my students going forward. You know, and as well, I wanted to understand more fully the aging process because I know so many dancers over 40 are still going, you know, we're out here, we're doing, we're doing, we're doing. And really, so it was kind of two worlds converging. I was always interested in, you know, the old teaching anatomy, kinesiology and wellness for dancers for years. And, you know, it was what, like what you said in the beginning, like sort of the converging of all of that and sort of distilled into this inquiry. Great. And so can you describe your research a little bit and what you've found so far? Sure. Um, it's, you know, it's scratching the surface, really. Um, most importantly, <laughs> the first thing was, you know, for the lit review, there's not a lot of literature at all on aging dancers. So, you know, when I was working my medical subheading terms and trying to, you know, whittle down and trying to find something, you know, there are some things on spinal range of motion um, with younger dancers, but not particularly for, a, 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 you know, an over 35 or 40 category. Um, so really there isn't anything. I would like to say that there was something. I didn't find really anything out there that was similar to what I'm doing. Um, my global survey, which, um, which had, I want to say 200 responses, it was really well responded to dancers and non-dancers. Um, it revealed the most poignant thing I think it revealed was that active older female dancers are experiencing spinal pain 10 to 20 years sooner than their female non-dancing counterparts, which shocks me. Um, right, 10 to 20 years sooner, their spinal pain is, so we're, we're doing something, we need to fix something, there's something we need to do. Um, as I'm still going, though, there's more to uncover, I'm sure. Um, I was inspired, though, by the, the volunteers for my range of motion studies, right, so that's separate from the survey, and I'm looking at um, dancers and non-dancers moving through di- the different planes of motion, just to look at spinal um, degrees of flexion and extension. Um, they're very enthusiastic to support the research. Um, and I want to say the oldest participant was 89 years old. So to date, right? 89. And she said that after the standardized warm up session and her filming, she was inspired to go home and ride her bike. <laughs> so there's something about this, you know, my, my, my catchphrase is motion is lotion. Mm-hmm. So, motion you know, when lotion. I work with these folks and I, Right. Motion is listen. I pull them into a study and they do something very minor and they feel better. You know, there's something to movement. Um, so that's surfacing as well as some of the other hard, more hard data. So a lot of this. So spinal mobility is the key interest for you. Um, what are some of the factors that affect spinal mobility and how are they affected by aging? 
Sure. So, you know, the spinal wellness is one of the main key determinants in whole body function. And you don't realize how much you depend on your spine until you've got a pain or you've got, you know, maybe a subluxation or something's wrong with your back. And you realize how um, how much of your movement, your locomotion through life is affected by the wellness or unwellness of your spine. Um, so there are intrinsic factors to consider, like age, family history, you know, whether or not you have diabetes history or arthritis history. Um, an intrinsic and extrinsic sort of factor, which is sort of borderline is hormonal status, you know, for women. Um, you know, are you, you know, are you premenopausal? Are you um, menopausal? Are you postmenopausal? And for how long? Um, because there is that bone loss, you know, that happens in that stage of life. Um, extrinsically, we need to consider activity levels. You know, overtraining for dancers is a problem. And, I, you know, if we can get the message out that sometimes more is not more, um, that would be a wonderful start to sort of looking at protocols in the studio and saying, okay, how much are we demanding of this body? And when do we, when is too much demand starting to create the damage? Um, as well, extrinsically, nutrition status, right? You know, the red S, um, conversation that we're all having in dance medicine and science is really important. That's the um, sleep quality, right? Relative the energy, relative energy, energy deficiency, yeah, right? Right. So, you know, that sort of plays up into the nutrition status as well. Um, and uh, sleep quality, you know, and things like proper warm up. So I wonder how many dancers go in and say, okay, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing a, a piece that requires a lot of arabesques, attitudes, lights behind, lights in front. Maybe I should warm my back up a little bit. Um, and that's, you know, you've got, you know, you, you think about warming joints up and you think about all the joints in your spine and all the supporting structural muscles that, um, you know, contribute either superficially or deep. And I always, I always do that in the beginning of a class. Now I take students through a really nice, um, warm up and I always include spinal warm up. Um, and sometimes it's movements that they've never done during warm up before. Like and I think, you know, well, this is about, you know, like just basic flat backs with, you know, contracting and releasing and getting on your knees and doing sort of cat pose and, you know, sort of side bending and just trying to hit all of the um, planes of movement, you know, with sort of like a space hold on the lower body, you know, and just thinking, okay, you know, it's not just my leg swings and my arm swings and, you know, my tongue and jetties I need to do. It really is important to get that spine nice and supple before you head into a class or rehearsal. Um, when you said, when you talk about spine mobility sort of being, um, integral to whole body function and overall health. Could you give an example of like a way in which reduced spinal mobility would impede whole body function and overall health? Well, I think for, you know, for anybody, a dancer or a non-dancer, I mean, you take a, a small um, gesture like getting up out of a chair right, where you do have to swing your body a little bit forward, the weight transfers, you know, from the pelvic girl into the feet, and then you have to push up. And, you know, if you've got, you know, a strain in one of your erector spinae muscles and, you're, and you can't literally make that motion with your upper body in order to get the counterbalance to lift yourself up out of a chair, you're really struggling to even just stand up. So, you know, that, that's just a small example. Another example is, you know, if you're, um, if you're having back pain, and I, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I know for me, when you're, when you're in pain in your spine and you're trying to move, just simply walk, um, and say you're having a back spasm, it, locomoting is just really, really difficult, um, as well as breathing sometimes. Yes. <laughs> you know? And then, and then it goes so, round and round and round. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's very true. I had... um. 
I remember years ago, I had this salient moment where I was teaching a non-dancer Pilates, and he was just a regular dude who had an office job, and I was having him do like lateral flexion and twisting, and he said, God, when I, when I think about flexibility, I, I never thought about the trunk. I always just think flexibility mm. means can I touch my toes, you know, like yeah. hip and hamstrings and calves, and yeah. that was yeah. really eye-opening for me because yeah. it didn't occur yeah. to me that some people would see that. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think it's it's probably true for most of us. And we're thinking flexibility in terms of, you know, extreme ranges of motion, like the high legs to the back and the front. And, you know, um, but I mean, it, you know, it, it it matters day to day. The basic, simple things matter day to day. And I think dancers, you know, non-dancers and dancers, everybody, you know, should be aware of how they're feeling, how, they're, how their spine is feeling, how their support, you know, structure is feeling um and if there's anything you know that's that's even minor um watch it and then you know if you have to we're always saying diagnosis it's always worth getting checked out if i hadn't had my diagnosis i wouldn't have known you know if i just sort of pushed through that like we're always taught you know oh you just need to work through it you know i wouldn't have found out that i had such a severe condition um you just touched on several sort of I don't know if they're conflicting, but complex factors in terms of, you know, we know movement is good. Like you said, motion is lotion. Um, but of course, you know, once you get into these extreme ranges of motion, like we see in a lot of dance forms, we don't know if that's really good. You know, have we crossed that threshold? Um, and, but then on the other hand, uh, like you said, that awareness is really beneficial and we do think of dancers as having an increased you know sort of somatic intelligence and awareness of their body but you also just said that we're trained to push through pain and you know ignore those mm-hmm. signals so so what's <laughs> you know they kind of go back and forth dance dance prepares you well right. dance doesn't prepare. yeah. <laughs> so yeah have, have you like is the needle still swinging for you from one side to the other or have you come to any sort of conclusion like do you propose that dancers maintain better or worse spinal mobility as they age i mean i think you know the research is meant to remove speculation and provide <laughs> hard data right? when does that happen? <laughs> but you know there are always more questions right so i mean while it's true that some dancers may suffer more wear and tear of their spines than others especially within other genres um you know, for instance, maybe a ballet dancer might suffer, suffer more um, extreme spinal range of motion or an than a tap dancer. dancer or, or, or a hip exactly, hop dancer. Or an yeah, dancer. It's be hot. Yes, yeah, exactly. Right, and maybe you know, dancers that are breaking are you know spinning on their necks or having more cervical pain, whereas you know, classical dancers maybe are having some more lumbar problems. You know, um, so but there are you know there are active dancers I have interviewed for my research who have no pain or issues in this area whatsoever, and that was across the whole age span, twenty and up. Um, but that's completely opposite from my own personal experience as a dancer. So, but I think in the end, the whole conversation for me is just to raise awareness that spinal health is really, really important to your whole body function. Um, dancers would benefit from doing things like warm up, prior to class, dynamic movements that target their muscles and joints, and then you know really paying attention to their spinal health. And I don't know that that that's even a phrase in conversation. We talk about you know, individual muscle groups and we talk about joints, you know, knees and ankles for dancers, especially in feet. But, you know, really I want to put that out there that, you know, let's start looking at the spine. Let's look at spinal health and, and yeah, notice what's happening for yourself back there, really. I have a phrase that I use with students where I tell them like, your spine is one of your body's top priorities. 
You know, it's like brain, heart, lungs, spine. Those are like, that's how your, you know, your hierarchical organization and and your, and that's not necessarily how we do it as dancers, you know? So I'll say things like, you know, your spine should be the handle of the whip and the leg is the whip, not the other way around. You know, you don't want to be whipping your, yeah. Not to say that, you know, it's not a perfect analogy because obviously we don't want that rigidity, but that idea of, you know, uh, core stability for limb mobility. Yes, I think from the inside to the outside, you know, more proximal to distal rather Mm -hmm. than the the reverse. I agree. I really do. (laughs) Um, You talked in your, uh, so in the blog that you've been doing for iAdams, the three-part series, you talk about these AGEs and um, the relationship to inflammation and stuff like that. Could you yeah. explain that to me yeah. and other um, <laughs> readers sure. and listeners? Um, yeah, this was something that obviously I didn't know about before I embarked on the research. And um, so advanced glycation end products are compounds that are formed when protein and fat combine with sugar in the bloodstream. And this process is called glycation, right? And so ages form in foods, foods that have been exposed to really high temperatures, like when you're grilling meat, and that's left with like a really dark char. Um, Deep frying, you know, um, extreme toasting tend to be high in these compounds, right? And um, so, in in fact, diet is the biggest contributing um, contributor to the ages of advanced glycation end products. It's mostly about nutritional status. Um, Luckily, your body has ways to eliminate these, you know, um, with antioxidants and enzymes. Um, but when you do con- consume too many AGE, or we call them ages, um, or too many um, forms spontaneously in your body, your body cannot keep up with eliminating those, and they accumulate. And so while low levels are generally not anything to worry about, high levels of these have been shown to cause oxidative stress and inflammation in the body. And, you know, there's a lot more focus now on inflammation and, you know, that effect on, um, on multiple um, problems that we can have soft and hard tissue alike, um, including collagen, which in joints can cause stiffness. And subsequently, where my studies come in is the decreased range of motion. So the advanced glycation end products cause a collagen process called collagen cross-linking, where the collagen literally dries out and cross-links instead of being sort of smooth fibers that move next to each other. And that's the cause of a lot of um, joint stiffness, you know. Um, high levels have been linked with the development of many different diseases like diabetes, heart disease, kidney failure, Alzheimer's, and even premature aging. Um, as well, people that tend to have high blood sugar or, you know, people like me that were pre-diabetic at some point um, are at a higher risk of producing too many ages, and that can, they can build up in the body. Um, so because of this, there are health professionals that are calling for these ages levels to become a marker of overall health. And in preparation for this chat with you today, I did a little more research and I found that there's an advancing field called diagnostics, right? And they've, this diagnostics field have developed something called an age reader. Um, believe it or not, it's a non-invasive monitoring device. It uses ultraviolet light to excite this autofluorescence in human skin tissue. Um, and the autofluorescence is from the level of advanced glycation end products. So... They're measuring of this and provide immediate, immediate cardiovascular risk prediction in 12 seconds. Um, pretty, pretty phenomenal. So, uh, you know, I'm busy looking around to see if I can have this done somewhere <laughs> to see what happens. You know? But you'd also, but didn't you also say in the blog that like 
even this is conflicting. You know, I mean, this is always the case with medicine, right? It's never yeah. just like, yeah. oh, yeah. well, if they're high, it's bad. And if they're low, it's good, right? Like no. you said, no. there are, no. there's conflicting research that some people have yep. these high levels and um, don't have exactly. the associated inflammation. Is that right? That's very true. And so I think what we're struggling now with in the, um, in the aging research community is getting a real clear um, sort of picture of what exactly aging is. And, you know, it's multifactorial. It's different for every person. Um, it is so dependent on familial history and extrinsic factors that you can't really say when you look at one person, you can't say, well, that's this. You know, you have to really, it's a multifactorial thing and you really have to get a good picture of that person's sort of whole health picture. So, you know, it's really hard to pin down. And I think, again, you know, there's a lot of aging research out there, but I feel like we're still, it's still in its infancy for sure. And there's a lot to learn. And I'm sure that I'll be correcting my research, maybe going down the, down the road saying, okay, this is what we, we believed then and what the data said then, but then looking at it now, including this, 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 and this, now we're thinking this, mm -hmm. you know, based on mm -hmm. what we're seeing from the data. So it's fluid, very, very fluid. And I find that exciting and nerve wracking all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> right because you can't really depend on it you know a solid ending and going okay it's this especially when you're <laughs> so in, the, we'll know. in the in the process of the phd it's like i just exactly. wrote that no <laughs> i know i know um yeah. i'm gonna i'm gonna i want to touch on one more thing with the spinal mobility component in particular before mm -hmm. we move on to some more general ideas but um and i'm throwing you a curveball here um yep. going off script but Spinal, spinal mobility and spinal pain have been so, have been pretty well established to often be associated with sort of psychological state. Um, you know, we, we actually did a podcast with uh, Dr. Marshall Higgins about some of these pain education um, techniques that are, that are emerging or have emerged. And I've been using them with my clients a bit in terms of just the other day somebody said to me you know I see what you're saying because every time I get out of a chair I expect to have pain and lo and behold I have pain <laughs> you know so re a lot of sort of reframing techniques and sort of saying like can you reframe that as sensation instead of as pain and and similarly even mobility you know people are told things like oh you have a disc issue and you shouldn't flex your spine you know, or you have osteoporosis and you shouldn't flex your spine. And not only do they then start moving less, which is problematic, but then they also become fearful, right, of movement. And so when you do like a spinal mobility test, it's hard to distinguish actual mechanical immobility from sort of fear-based or um, stress-based uh, immobility. Yeah, uh, if I can just share with you, that's an interesting question, Ellie, because in the in the scope of the PhD, we almost got off track um, in considering a side study on pain perception and tolerance, um, especially for dancers, because we're thinking, okay, well, we're asking about pain, but there's so much dependent on perception and tolerance and and the mind and how the mind perceives levels of pain and how do we actually measure that, you know, so it really, really, really is so subjective. And, you know, I think our, our minds and our, you know, our connection to our, our mind-body connection is just, we're just scratching the surface in exploring the control that we could have over perceived pain. 
Um, and I am right with you there that in, in retraining someone to think about, you know, maybe just get out of the chair a different way and don't expect pain and you may very well not have it. That intrigues me. And I'm, I'm not discounting anything at this point because, you know, again, there's such a, um, a problem with pain perception. So I've read some studies, um, I, I want to say based on, um, sort of, um, nursing home, residents, you know, where they would stop moving because they think they were in pain and then not moving actually caused pain. Right. You know, caused tissue damage. And, yeah. Exactly. And so there was atrophy that eventually because they were afraid to move because they thought perhaps maybe they had fallen before they were going to fall again and have pain. Um, you know, so it was cyclical and it was mostly psychological where, you know, I'm not going to move. Therefore, I, I can't move anymore because, you know, it was a cyclical thing. So movement depends on range of motion. The range of motion depends on the movement. Um, and certainly pain is a factor in both of those things, or if we can say perception of pain. So that is a wonderful, yeah, wonderful discussion to have. And I, again, I think we're just, you know, it's the tip of the iceberg for this right now. And it's wonderful that you brought it up because it is, it did factor into my research. I thought if I go off in this direction, <laughs> this is a different it'll be PhD. a different PhD. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So you know, it's one of those rabbit holes you really want to go down because you're interested. But then I had to sort of say, no, okay, that's for a later time, but really intrigued by it. Um, sort of adjacent to that, the um, let's talk a little bit more about dancers and perceptions and other skills that contribute. So like, certainly it seems that motor coordination and imagery and motivation to move um, and embodied comprehension of sort of um, anatomy and biomechanical concepts are are advantageous in the aging process, right? And it would seem that dancers would would be higher in those sorts of skills. Do you think that's true? Um, I think awareness of all of these is important to the aging process um, as well. Some dancers seem to have a high higher pain threshold than others, which definitely can help push through a diagnosis or a rehab process, perhaps. Um, and as well, I want to say that motivation is a huge factor um, within the social aspect of a group. You know, um, exercise is a strong motivator to continue. Um, and, you know, again, <laughs> dancers are a really obedient bunch. And so, uh, you know, th- this motivation to move idea, I think, um, is probably not an issue, especially when you get to the elite status. You know, these are just people that um, this is their natural expression as a human being, and they're just, this is just what they do. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, um, these are all things that we need to be aware of that, that can play into, you know, the process of aging and aging well, you know, embodying movement, um, understanding good biomechanical concepts, um, you know, staying motivated to move. I think it's all really, really important. I was, um, planning to say to you also that I like, you know, we don't even know really what some injury rates of older dancers are compared to the general population right like do dancers have their hips replaced at a higher rate do we know that I'm not sure right well yeah that's not what I'm particularly researching on but it would be really nice to have that information because I mean I know a lot of people that aren't dancers that have had hip replacements so really that's interesting yeah yeah and I mean I would argue like a knee rehab a knee replacement rehab is is difficult and like I have witnessed older dancers have their knees replaced and, you know, persevere through that rehabilitation with such gusto and discipline and emerge on the other side dancing, (laughs) you know, and I don't know, 
that outside of other elite athletes, I don't know that you'd see that so much in the general population, such a incredible recovery, you know, so there are factors like, do dancers get, is dancing good or bad? Well, are you getting injured more? Are you recovering better? There's so many factors to consider. Right. And I think too, it's, it's one of our main goals, I think as researchers in dance medicine and science community is to, you know, say to dancers and artistic directors who I think sometimes fear us because, you know, we're going to tell them, oh, you need to lower your legs or stop. You know, it's not it. You know, the aesthetic is as important to us as it is to the artistic directors. It's just, I think, how the, how a dancer gets from a, point A to point B. You know, it's not an all, all or nothing at all costs anymore because we can't afford to keep doing that to bodies. So, you know, it's, I think it's partly our responsibility, partly the responsibility of teachers and pedagogues in, in the dance world to sort of try to say, okay, well, the old way was, you know, let's force the leg up in arabesque, let's make that back really, really straight and just keep doing it over and over again because you can. And, you know, um, just to have the same kind of care and attention for dancers that elite athletes, athletes get for periodization and, you know, um, and, and a, a logical progression, you know, that would be really nice to have that across the board and to just keep living away from it. Um, sort of to that point, um, if you haven't read Janine's blogs, go read them. And in one of them, was it the first one? She has two pictures of the same dancer in arabesque. And at first glance, you might say they're labeled at, you know, what is it, 21 years and 32 years or something like that? It's actually two different dancers. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And it says, you know, the, at first glance, you think, wow, look at that really high arabesque on that young dancer. But you know, if you have any training in this field, you say like, talk about spondylolisthesis or spondyloliasis, you know, she's folded mm-hmm. at one joint spot, right. you know, right. and exactly. the older dancer's leg is not so high, but there are sort of technical uh, improvements. And, you know, you talk about sort of how her weight is shifted on her foot and um, the orientation of her overall rib cage. And I mean, certainly that was my experience that, I, I did feel in my aging process, which yeah does seem to start around 22 if you're a dancer, but um, right. <laughs> I started to lose spinal mobility, but I also became less tolerant of some of those um, tech to, technical styles. You know, and even in teaching kinesiology and anatomy, a lot of my students, they have that aesthetic shift over the process of learning this stuff, something that used to be really impressive and attractive to them becomes sort of, you know, cringeworthy after they learn more about anatomy. So um, could you talk just for a moment about how you think developments and maturity of technique interact with the aging process? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I'm glad you referred to that photo because um, when I put those photos side by side and, you know, I'm recording the dancer's aging and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, you know, and, and I'm looking and I'm looking and just biomechanically, you're looking at the pure use of that high extension and all of those lovely collagen fibers lined up pink and, and supple. Um, and she's able to get that super high arabesque, you know, um, rib cage open, weight in the heel, you know, and nobody in the audience is going to notice that at all. But, you know, if you've got a biomechanist or a trained, you know, trained teacher working with that dancer, you can say, look, okay, 
you know, in performance, I know your adrenaline is pumping, you're going to hit this, but in class, let's try to fire this muscle. Let's try to get the weight shifted here so that we don't keep hyperextending the leg or keep opening the ribs. And therefore, you know, more of the correct um, agonists are, are, are being recruited to, to hold that shape over time. And um, the dancer on the top, the dancer who's older, and strangely enough, she has the same back condition that I have, that dancer. So she is dancing with that condition, which floors me. She's amazing. And, um, you know, I took a look at that shot, and I knew in the studio that I was seeing something different from her as we were standing there and I was, I was filming. And, you know, you see the weight is correctly, more correctly displaced over the ball of the foot. She's firing her, um, her quadricep on the supporting leg more correctly. Um, and granted, she's got it. There's a little bit of a tilt in the shoulder. Um, and that's, you know, there's, you can see the range of motion loss. But for me, if I, I see the body knowledge with which she's making the shape, you can just see it. And if I could take that body knowledge and put it on the dancer that's 21, then it would have it would be the perfect merging of worlds, right? <laughs> Young dancers with the body knowledge of someone who's spent, you know, an additional fifteen years training. Um, and that's why I think it's important to have old masters in front of young dancers. You know, the old masters who are working in the studio have been through it. You know, and these people understand that, you know, that we need career longevity. So, you know, that dancer who may not have that, you know, above ninety arabesque anymore, but you can see you can see that she's she's holding that the right way, the correct way, for lack of a better word. Um, but again, putting that body body knowledge on the younger dancer that can do the range of motion would be for me the, a perfect perfect world meeting. It kind of has it's sort of a, an issue of sustainability in some ways. You know, yeah. like learning. Yeah. That's how it's always felt to me. Like, what is sustainable? How can I do this in a sustainable way? Um, let's also before we wrap up, let's be sure to talk about balance. I know that's not specifically your area of research, but um, bad balance can be, I mean, it can be deadly for older people when a fall leads to a hip replacement, which can lead to a life-threatening, you know, infection or other complications. It's often, um, you know, falls are very serious for older people. And of course, good balance can, to some degree, reduce your your fall risk. So, um, do you know of any research or do you have any, um, speculation on how older dancers, um, maintain balance compared to other populations? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I, um, in my experience, older dancers who are still, um, active do in fact still have pretty good balance, at least what I've observed in my range of motion study. So, you know, as we age, we're dealing with decreased proprioception um, and, you know, to some degree, sarcopenia, right, you know, muscle loss. And so, you know, staying active and loading, you know, loading um, bones is really, really important um, to remedy this. So when, but when compared to non-exercisers of similar ages, I think active dancers, in my experience and my observations, are better at managing things like level changes, shifts of weight and direction. Um, unexpected so I have a project, perturbation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Unexpected, you know, just, um, and in my project in Philadelphia, it's called the Legacy Project. I work with and observe professional dancers over 30, 35 years old. And I've been building a movement curriculum specifically for them for about the last seven months. And, you know, we work on things like balance, flexibility, strength, with the idea that if you indeed keep working on these skills, you're less likely to lose them, you know. So I do think, you know, obviously that's something that we can lose over time. Um, and dancers certainly who have stayed in the field longer 
um, I think have more of a more of a fighting chance at holding onto those skills for for a longer period of time. But you know, we do things like you know, um, running, stopping, shifting of weight. I do a whole patty cake series, like a whole and hand eye coordination. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I include small jumps with that and shifts of weight to the side. So it's hand eye and then shifting of weight and then level changes. And you'd be surprised at how, yeah, exactly. And you'd be surprised at how difficult that is at first. And then when I when I train you know, older dancers to sort of like, I remind them, I say, you know, remember, this is choreography. So don't tackle this like it's a problem. Tackle it like it's a, an expression, you know, that you need to just um, sort of make it happen within your body and make it um, organic. And boom, their dancer kicks in, right? Their dancer yeah. kicks in and all of a sudden they're doing things that it's choreography for them. It's no longer a skill building task. And um, yeah, really have been, had phenomenal results. So I'm, 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 you know, taking notes and building a curriculum, and hopefully this is something that can be of value someday based on, it's sort of been like a lab for me, you know, yeah, like what works, great. what doesn't work. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I think Th- Thomas Hanna, you know, sort of, he who uh, first gave name to somatics, um, had a saying that was, you know, basically saying, yeah, when we're young, we need a lot of energy, you know, and I have a two-year-old and she falls down all the time. <laughs> like, can you yeah. imagine if you just <laughs> fell down all the time? Like, if you right. had four big falls that skinned your knee every day. Like, <laughs> so it's like, you need a lot of energy. And then he says, you know, yeah, we have a, our energy diminishes as we get older, but we have wisdom. We know how to walk properly. We know how to step up with care. We know how to attend you know, we know when our um, attention is overloaded and we need to stop and focus on what we're doing and proceed with caution. And, you know, if we honor that, it it would be better. You know, I think we're such a youth-obsessed society that we forget to honor yeah. the truth in that statement. Yeah. Um, when I was growing up, I was, a, you know, a ballet-trained student in a rigorous ballet program. And I don't know if I was explicitly told this, but I always had a sense that the message was that dance would ruin your body, you know, that this this okay. ballet thing was for not for long and it would ruin your body and it was just a matter of time. Right. Um, right. But things have changed so much, I think, with the advent of more somatics and PT and conditioning and just better information entering curricula. Do you think it's time to change... Um, the prognosis like do you think it's time to really shift how we think and talk about dance particularly in these rigorous elite spheres um do you think it would be better to talk about dance as a healthy pursuit or do you think we need to still be realistic about the damage done you know i think it depends on the level of of um, immersion in, and you know, if we're talking about novice dancers, you know, that's one thing I think the elite dancers certainly, um, are dealing with, um, overuse issues and some real, um, challenges because of their schedules and oftentimes, you know, budgets and, um, companies can't afford understudies and things like that. So, but then overall, I think movement, movement in general is good for us. You know, our bodies are designed to move. Um, and when we don't, the result is stiffness and atrophy, right? So it's kind of like a car. You know, a car does better when you run it. Same with a body. body does better when you move it. Um, dancers need to undo, though. I think this is really key. You know, training causes imbalances. And, you know, for dancers to think that 
that their training is just going to class is really something that I think we're all trying to do in dance medicine and science and saying, look, you know, if you're, all you're doing is classical ballet and all you're doing is external rotation, you know, we need to balance that with like some parallel stretching and work, you know. Um, so I have a good friend at University of the Arts in Philadelphia who tells her students to take a movement shower. <laughs> Literally. In other words, right? How great is that? Get yeah. to your Pilates, your gyro classes, your, your conditioning, whatever works for you to stay balanced, right? So if you've done, you know, one movement, try to to, to balance that with something opposite that. Um, and, and that for me is training for the long haul. Training for a long career means that I have to manage what I'm doing on a daily basis. Um, what I would love to see happen is that as, as a global dance, uh, as a global community, take serious look at training protocols and what we're doing with younger dancers in the studio, like stretching cold muscles or forcing a higher vest, you know, before a student is actually strong enough to cope with that kind of line. Um, putting young dancers on point way too soon is a crime. Um, you know, oversplitting, you know, lateral tilts that really aren't lateral tilts. They're way beyond that. Exploiting someone's hypermobility, right? Um, you know, these early experiences, I think, can directly affect how dancers age and have a correlation with career longevity for sure, you know, joint health as well. So I think we're moving in the right direction. Certainly dancers like Misty Copeland and Dusty Button, right? They're breaking stereotypes. Like, here's a stronger, healthier performer, um, you know, and you think about Alessandra Ferry, who's, you know, who's still performing and looking, you know, quite strong. Um, so, you know, I think we're, we're moving in the right direction um, as well. I think universities and companies globally are joining the effort and installing things like wellness programs and screenings. Um, but it's not, in my opinion, it's not widespread enough. It needs to happen, you know, as a matter of course, but it is definitely a step in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, I think we see it. I, yeah. I mean, even when I was a young yeah. ballet dancer, it was, very unusual for people to dance past 40 in ballet. Right. And right. when I was in London getting my my dance science degree, I think there were maybe three dancers in the Royal Ballet at least who were pushing 50, right. you know, as principals. Right. So yeah. um, somebody correct me if I'm yeah. wrong, but I'm pretty sure about that. Um, yeah, and I can tell you that the, um, you know, part of my, I had Birmingham Royal Ballet as part mm-hmm. of my studies, and a lot of them are over 30. Yeah. And they're fabulous. They're amazing, and they but they have the care. You know, they really do have the care there. It's so great because there's so much maturity of artistry that's gained in those <sighs> years, and you know, know, to not have to yeah. s- to to be able to um, see that on stage, to not lose yeah. that simply because the machine, the body breaks down, is such a great right. gift. Um, is there anything else you want to add? Anything you want to that we didn't touch on? I know there were some other things that you. Um, that are maybe upcoming yeah. in your third blog, or I don't want to, like I said, I don't want to spoil. Well, the you know, there's, your third blog. yeah, <laughs> no problem. I love that. So I don't know if this is a spoiler alert if, if people will find this in um, in the next blog. Um, we'll see how the edits happen. But, um, you know, there's a couple other things in terms of aging that we could be thinking about um, that, that sort of is, is really a hot subject right now, the subject of telomeres. And um, which are the sort of little end caps on the end of your DNA strands, and as they, with every replication, those those end caps shorten a little bit. And you know that's something intrinsic that happens. And there is um, some real interesting research now, just with mice, where you know the enzyme telomerase is something that could possibly um, repair or even extend telomeres, so that the aging process might in fact be able to be slowed down considerably. So that's something I'm watching and that's something I find really, really interesting in terms of, you know, a therapeutic approach 
Um, but again, it's, you know, the research is just in mice. So, you know, there's that. And, you know, in terms of my own research, I'll be publishing my next couple of papers in the next, I want to say, 18 months or so. Um, and putting out some more hard data on dancers um, compared with non-dancers in range of motion of the spine. So hopefully providing, um, you know, the whole, you know, filling in that little hole in the literature just a little bit. And, and I would love, love to encourage researchers who are interested in aging to contact me and, you know, sort of, you know, get a conversation going because I think we need much more. We need more work in this area. Definitely. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. it's, such, it's such important work. Um Thank you so Thank much you. for talking. Is is there a contact that you want to share, either your um, personal contact or um, the Legacy Project or Safe and Dance, any, any contact info you want to put out there? Sure. Um, I have two contacts. I have my email, which I'd be happy to put out there. It's lowercase j and the number nine, uh, Bryant, B-R-Y-A-N-T, and the number three. So j9bryant3 at gmail.com. And I do have a Facebook page. It's Janine Capello Bryant. And if dancers who are interested in the work of the Legacy Project would just send me a note, you know, via Facebook Messenger. Um, the Legacy Project is actually a closed page, um, and it's by invitation only. And we have we tend to have a very um, active discussion on personal experiences and things on that page. So, you know, generally I keep the page closed for confidentiality. Um, but happy to, you know, speak with someone who's interested in, in joining the project. Sometimes if I don't have class, I'll do a lecture, um, you know, an anatomy lecture on there or, you know, some kind of um, ancillary uh, subject matter that I can touch on uh, virtually that I often invite dancers to just to sort of bring awareness about this. Fantastic. And all of that um, will be on our website as well. Great. Thank you, Janine. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. On behalf of Marissa and myself, I, Ellie Kushner, want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of Dancewell Podcast. Our intro soundscape was composed by the dynamic duo Brendan Berry and Dylan Ezzy, and dancer-designer Katie Dean crafted our visual image. To those of you who have made this season possible by contributing to Dancewell, we are infinitely grateful. We wouldn't be where we are without you. Your donations help pay for our SoundCloud membership, website fees and upgrades, and our recording technology. If you too would like to make a donation to DanceWell, please follow the link in the description of this podcast to visit our GoFundMe page. We thank you in advance for your support. And lastly, if you like what you hear, we invite you to go to iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and search DanceWell Podcast to subscribe. You can also view all of our episodes and learn more about this podcast by visiting our website, www.dancewellpodcast.com. And if you have any questions or want to get in touch, email us at dancewellpodcast at gmail.com. Bye.